This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. Thank you so much for joining us again for a very exciting uh, conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Allie Bryan from the University of South Carolina. Uh, we're going to talk today about some of her research she recently has done on motor competence with kids, early childhood uh, students that are at risk. And we're going to talk about some of her research and some of the applications it has to do with um, with adaptive physical education and physical education in general. So thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Bryan. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. We are very excited to have you as well. So let's just dive right into it. Um, let's talk a little bit about you. So um, we've known each other now for uh, uh, you know a few years now, but uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in the field of adaptive physical education? Sure. So as you said, I am... Uh, an associate professor at the University of South Carolina, and I'm in the Department of Physical Education. Uh, and actually, I'm the one who started Adapted PE here at South Carolina. Uh, prior to my arrival, we, we really only had that one course. You know, most programs have one class in Adapted PE. Well, I'm pretty proud to now say that I'm the coordinator of the Adapted PE program here. And uh, it also includes our brand new master's program, as, where, as well as a, an adaptive physical education activity research lab. That's, yeah, that's really, really impressive. I mean, in, in the academia world, um, it seems like your university is in, in our field has really skyrocketed in the last few years to prominence. I mean, you have so many PhD students, you've got great research coming out, you're at all these wonderful conferences. I had no idea that you'd, you'd started that program on your own. That's really, really impressive to see how far you've come. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, real quick question, not on this topic of, um, of your article, but just like, is there any advice you would give somebody that is um, going into a new place without very much adaptive physical education? How did you get that started? Like, what was the, what was that process like? Well, it's, it's really interesting that, um, if you're with faculty who care about children, sometimes they just do not realize that what you're doing isn't good enough. You know, if, if they're more on the general physical education side of things and perhaps disability isn't on their radar, maybe they just didn't realize stats like only 8% of children are educated in a specialized school and that in fact 92% of children are educated in, in, in general schools. And so we were not equipping our physical educators to be prepared to ensure that all students could learn. You know, and because they cared, and I would say statistics like that, they wanted to do something about it. So, and it just became iterative and, and evolving along the way. At first, I just said, well, let me just add another class, maybe just a second class, could that help? And then as we started moving, we realized that our undergraduate curriculum was gonna be a little tricky to, to to tinker with initially, so there was room to add a master's program. And so they were willing to do that with me. So that was very exciting. And I'm also very fortunate to be in a department that is very fiscally savvy, for lack of a better word. And we, we really pour our research, our resources into our, our graduate students, our doctoral students. And because of which, uh, being one of the, the tenure track research faculty, 
I had quite a bit of freedom to do what I wished with my doctoral student lines. And so, of course, I was recruiting students who were interested in adapted PE and adapted physical activity. And it just sort of snowballed from there. So I guess my advice is you can always ask. And the worst thing anyone can say is no. But make sure that you understand statistics and the numbers because they're really powerful. I like that. I like that. And I think that that could be taken um, in a public school as well as that, that, that advice could be taken in a public school and a university, really. Because, you know, I think that's, you know, adaptive physical education or teaching the kids with disabilities is not always happening at the schools as well. And I like that idea of also using statistics and references and research, which we're about to talk about, which is a great uh, segue to talk about your research, using that research to advocate for programs in the meaningful ways to actually get things started. So, yeah, so um, Dr. Bryan, we have you here today to talk about an article that recently came out. Uh, in sports medicine, and it's called Motor Competence Levels and Developmental Delay in Early Childhood, a multi-center cross-sectional study conducted in the USA. A bit of a, a mouthful. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you recently did a study this last year, um, and you had a, a very large amount of uh, students or children, about 580 is what I have here, uh, uh -huh. from ages three to six. And um, you gave them uh, the TGMD, which we've talked about a lot in this, this class. And you're um, looking to see um, what their motor competence was, correct? Pretty much, yeah. So with that, let, let's, we're gonna talk about the importance of this article and all the nitty gritty of this. But let's start out with telling us, and telling me as well, um, what is motor competence and, and why is it important? That, that is such a, Simple yet difficult question, right? So not only am I heavily involved in adaptive physical education, I'm also fairly uh, strong in, in motor development, given you know, the title of this manuscript. I'm sure that makes sense. And in the motor development field, we argue over what is the definition of motor competence. So often you'll see terms like motor proficiency, motor performance, fundamental motor skill, competence, motor ability, coordination, things like that. And so the definition that I like to use, and again, you'll, you'll see multiple definitions for this, but it's really that motor competence is a global term that subsumes all those terminologies that I just named to describe goal-directed human movement. And that's really the long and short of it. And so then you asked, why is it so important? It's actually very much an under-researched topic. Um, it's, it's become hotter lately, mainly due to a fairly seminal manuscript done by Stodden and colleagues in 2008. But uh, prior to that manuscript and prior to the research done today, as a field, the physical activity, whether it's adapted physical activity or just physical activity behavior field in general, was really concerned with how do we increase physical activity behavior and how do we reduce sedentary behavior. And if you've read the intervention literature for that, you see that most of them fail to make meaningful change. In fact, the best of the best, you'll be lucky to see a 10 minute increase in daily physical activity, right? And, and why is that? Well, because they, they failed to recognize, and our evidence suggests this to be true, one of the most powerful underlying mechanisms of physical activity behavior and holistic development in general, which is motor competence, right? So motor competence is a known correlative physical activity. 
But recently I've been doing some other research as well that also supports motor competence as a known correlate of social emotional development, school readiness, pro-social behaviors, and executive functioning. So in my biased opinion, I, I think that motor confidence is sort of the, the hub of positive developmental trajectories of health, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. Now, so with that motor competence, so in this article, and, and this is not my area, um, but <laughs> with the motor competence, um, I believe that you, you were assessing that within your article to identify or be better able to identify um, developmental delays within um, early childhood students. Is that correct? Yep, that's it. Okay, and were you able to find um, issues uh, or like was it prominent, those motor competence issues in kids with uh, developmental delays? Yeah, so prior to this manuscript, there were some biases and beliefs surrounding which children were quote-unquote at risk for developmental delay. Okay. And if you dove into the literature, you would see things like low socioeconomic status or extreme urbanicity or possibly children with disabilities, right? And to some extent, any combination of those would, would place a child more at risk for developmental delay than a child who didn't have those factors. And so over the last 10 years or so, I've been testing children for a variety of different research projects. And these were children who were rural, urban, high SES, low SES, male, female, with and without disability. And you know, 78% of the children that we tested were either at risk for or showed a profound developmental delay, regardless of the, the potential risk factors. So essentially developmental delay didn't discriminate in these findings. And that I am now making the hypothesis that today's children are facing a secular decline in their motor development. So, so you're saying that overall, like beyond like just American students, regardless of all those variables are just, they're declining in their ability, their motor development, motor competence. Yes, so we have a secular decline, meaning that today's youth was significantly lower in their motor skill development than children from 1985 or 2000, you know, TGMDs one and two. Wow. And basically developmental delay didn't discriminate, right? None of these factors matter. So the original title for this manuscript was supposed to be Houston, we have a movement problem. Developmental delay doesn't discriminate. <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, uh, yeah, sports medicine being a really high impact factor journal, they just, they didn't like the title. <laughs> and the title is actually their suggestion. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, it's, that seems really profound. Do you think that that's happening in other countries? Oh, I know it is. So it's interesting. I'm a part of a research project uh, with, a, with a friend of mine in Wales. And so she's looking at Welsh preschoolers and, and using an intervention program that, that our group uses called SKIP, which I could get into later if you'd like. And she said to me, is it possible that 100% of my sample would be developmentally delayed? And I said to her, no way. Yeah, the worst of the worst of the samples I've tested have been 84 to 88%. So I took a look at her videos and we, we did some rate of reliability encoding and we were 
And sure enough, 100% of her sample, so these are Welsh children, showed a developmental delay in their motor skills. And then I also know similar findings are coming out of groups out of um, Australia, Germany, um, South Africa. So I've seen it in other countries as well. This information, so our kids are rapidly, it seems like they're rapidly declining in this area of motor competence. It sounds kind of scary to me a little bit, but what is it that we can do um, with that information as a, as a field? Yeah, well, if I had my way, and, and I hope I do, I hope that someday that the results of a manuscript like this, um, the results from this uh, create a policy shift. Because it, it's non it makes no sense to me that we do not have physical education in preschool. You know, so if we could provide daily physical education during preschool, kindergarten, you know, the early years, and do it with somebody who's highly qualified both in general and adapted P, because in my opinion, I support the Cheryl saying that good P is adapted P and vice versa. So if we had somebody really heavily trained in, in adapted P, motor development, physical education, leading physical education in preschool, this would go away. And I know it would because I've done it. I've, I've created motor skill intervention programming, which are just really good universally designed PE. And I've seen kids go from as low as the 17th percentile up into the mid to high 70th percentile in as fast as six weeks, twice a week, 30 minutes. We have done numerous intervention studies, basically, using a program called SKIP, which is just really darn good physical education. And we've implemented it in preschool centers. And we've seen kids averaging in the 17th percentile grow as high as this in the 74th, 72nd, 74th, you know, mid up into the 80th percentile in just six weeks. That is, uh, that is incredible. And so, so you're suggesting that, that we use information and research just like this, um, the one I'm holding in my hands right now, to go and advocate for these things, as well as couple it with things like interventions that you've already done, like this SKIP program to say, hey, these kids need um, more quality physical education. But however, the feasibility of those things are obviously probably a lot more difficult. A, we need to get quality physical educators out there. Uh, and then we have to also get the schools to buy in and all these other pieces to buy in. Well, I'm glad you said that. So yeah, feasibility is important. So in an ideal world, we, we would have daily physical education or even just two days a week in early childhood centers with a licensed physical educator. That would be ideal. And, and I feel like that strategy would be fruitful. I, I did another research study with a, with a colleague of mine in Belgium. And Belgium's neat, a very unique country in that they do have physical education starting as, as young as age three. And they have it daily and with a physical educator. And so we compared and contrasted the, the motor skills of their preschool children with ours. And even on a test like the TGMD, which is arguably American biased, right? Some of those skills like, you know, the baseball batting and throwing, they really don't play baseball in Belgium. So even with, a, with an American biased assessment like the TGMD, the Belgian kids were significantly higher than ours hmm. on all aspects of the TGMD. And the difference was they had daily PE and ours didn't. You know, so, so I know that if we could shift policy to mandate physical education in the early years, it would make a big difference. 
But in absence of that, my, my dissertation work was actually on working with Head Start teachers and providing them with background in motor development and teaching them to implement SKIP, and let's call it SKIP Light, because a trained physical educator would, would, would implement SKIP a little differently than say a classroom teacher. But even at 30 to 60% fidelity, the Head Start teachers were able to make significant improvements in their students' uh, fundamental motor skills. So they made a jump to around the 60th percentile, say, versus a physical educator or an interventionist could get them up to the high 70s and the 80s percentile. And so I actually calculated an equation that in every 1% every increase in skip fidelity would result with a 0.1 standard score increase in TGMD scores at the end of the program. So what does that tell me? It tells me that physical education matters, it's important, it's a solution, but that the teacher matters as well. Yes, I think, and I, I mean, my personal experience, and you know, I'm a new faculty member at a university, but you know, I'm, I'm encouraged with the new teachers coming out um, at the moment. Uh, it seems like that whole roll out the ball mentality has been mostly uh, wiped out, at least with the newer generation of, of people coming out. So I think that there's a higher quality group, at least, I mean, but obviously this is just from my experience. Um, but I think that that quality of teacher is really, really impactful, um, A, to the student's ability and, and, and us improving their ability, but also us as being advocates to try to get this throughout the country or in a school district, um, things like what you're saying, because if they see poor teaching, these school districts, then they're not going to see the results and they're not going to advocate for it. So it seems like such an important piece. Well, it's true. And then the earlier you can start, the greater impact you're going to have. Have you done any research on that? I was kind of wondering if you've um, looked at anything or if you have any ideas on like, how does this impact them um, getting something like the SKIP program you're talking about or not getting the SKIP program uh, when they're nine, 10, 15? Yeah, that's a really great question. So you're asking me about longitudinal effects of SKIP and perhaps if a cohort received it or they didn't, what they look like six, seven years later. And, you know, honestly, I personally have not done that. I, I've only, uh, I graduated in 2014, so I haven't had the chance to really be in a position to track children, but we're doing it now. We actually started a, a program out here, I think two years ago, and we're working on tracking these children. I have a really nice relationship with a rural school district that will allow me to do so, to follow them all the way through, through high school. So that's exciting. But I know other, other researchers have looked at three years post-intervention uh, and, and have seen promising effects on you know, motor skill development holding. And so that's, that's encouraging. It's really encouraging to see. And I know um, we have taken a look at, so Sally Taunton Needham is one of my former doctoral students and she did a study during her master's program where she gave a program kind of like SKIP I'll we'll call it skip-like. And uh, she took a look at its effects on a, a test called the Brigance, which is a school readiness test. And so she had a cohort of children who had it and then a cohort who didn't. And she was able to compare them two years later and, and did see significant differences in both motor skills and, and, and academic achievement. 
it was a small sample, so you know, I wouldn't want to make a big inference on it, but it is something we're looking to uh, replicate here. Definitely. I have an, an, just one other question kind of about the study, and I was kind of wondering, so you were talking about like, you know, that we, our kids, their motor competence is going significantly down from 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking at, you know, your, your, the test you used was the TGMD, which we talk about a lot on this, uh, this podcast, you know, and obviously the new one just came out, the three, and I saw that you used the two in yours. Um, yes. Would that, would that make a big difference? Do you think if like, and how would that make a difference um, as far as like being able to compare the, the students on their motor competency levels compared to now versus uh, before? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the, the way the normative references are calculated, it, it's based on census-based representation of American children. So for example, and this is not exact, so don't quote this, but if the American population were say 65% uh, white and 15% and Hispanic and you know, and then the rest, you know, African American, you know, however the, the ethnic breakdown occurs, they would create a sample to represent that. They test them, and then within the 800 to 1,000 children, depending on the addition, wherever 50% of them fall becomes 50th percentile. And then, you know, wherever 25% of them fall, it's 25th percentile, and so on and so forth. So, Basically what happens is if our children actually are exhibiting a secular decline, what was once the 25th percentile will become the 50th. Right, so you take developmental delay and you make it the norm. If that makes sense. No, definitely. So, so, so and what this means in a way is that, especially like um, states like Minnesota, which has a very defined uh, eligibility criteria uh, for their adaptive physical education services, um, where they say, I think two standard deviations below the mean mm -hmm. um, is, is a qualifying um, factor. And they use, I think TGMD is the test that they, mm -hmm. the test that they reference. I like their guidelines a lot, a lot that they've made them concrete. <laughs> Something like that then means that a kid that um, would have qualified under the TGMD two or before now may not qualify, even though that delay um, or their motor competence skill level hasn't changed at all. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. That's a, that's a little scary as well. So kids may not be getting services um, that maybe would have benefited from them because we as a whole are declining. That's right, that's right. And so, you know, the raw score that it would have taken for you to qualify for developmental delay from the TGMD2, that same raw score, although the, the, the raw score possibility from the three is different. Yeah. Well, and, I, no, I, obviously it's a different I, test as well. So obviously it's more complicated than just comparing them from before and after. But um, right. it's, it's a little scary to think about that, that, that we're getting kids now. Um, with the new assessments that would have gotten, um, you know, a, a significant delay before and would have said, hey, we need to give this kid services. We need to, you know, basically do what assessment's supposed to do in adaptive physical education. Um, tell us that this kid needs something, but that the results are just declining drastically 
that that may not happen anymore. That That is definitely um, a little shocking as well as, I think this is one of the reasons that one of my viewers said, you've got to have this article on the, the podcast because this is, I think, low key a little bit because maybe Houston, we have a, a motor confidence problem. <laughs> might have been a little bit better of a title because like, I mean, this is really, really, really compelling and um, significant research that needs to kind of get out there. Yeah. Um, it's like, so, so do you have any ideas on, a, on like, so that, that, that situation that I just discussed, um, a kid that maybe we would have said, hey, he needs additional services 10, 15 years ago, and now it says, oh, he's just like everybody else. Um, I mean, what do you think we should do about something like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so I have a couple of suggestions. The first one is, um, I don't know if you followed the, the Nick Pede Ask an Expert. Definitely. And of course, Dr. Dale Ulrich was the subject of the most recent one and, and in a, I believe somebody tweeted and asked him, you know, I have a child who qualified on the two is no longer qualifying on the three, which I was, oh, okay. And he mentioned something about using confidence intervals. So if the child is close, according to Dr. Ulrich, you can use the confidence interval, you know, if they fall within a range of, you know, A to C, but B is the main, and if that A range qualifies them, then use it. So that's certainly one approach. And, but sometimes certain states will actually require multiple assessments anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you could use a product-oriented assessment along with the TGMD, something, uh, there's a new test out of Portugal called the Motor Competence Assessment. And it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm actually going to be folding it into my research now as well, where it looks at things like, throwing velocity, kicking velocity, jumping distance, um, shuttle run times, you know, things like that, and see how the two play together to perhaps give a more broader profile. But you could, there's nothing stopping you from using the TGMD2. So that's an option as well. Um, but interestingly, we, we are starting to collect TGMD3 and 2 on the children, and we are seeing differences in percentile ranks. Interesting. Interesting. Um, before I want to kind of jump in a second and ask you kind of future stuff. So but while we focus a little bit more on, I kind of skipped this part, but like as we focus um, on this article, can you tell me a little bit um, about the data collection process that you went through as well? Sure. It was quite the, uh, quite the endeavor. Um, as you see, there's numerous authors on this. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it actually started when I was a doctoral student at Ohio State and my, my advisor, Jackie Goodway, she had an NIH grant with David Stodden, who's my colleague here at South Carolina. And the purpose of the NIH grant was to uh, collect the evidence to support their model from the 2008 paper. And uh, so I was one of the graduate students on that grant and I got to collect a lot of those data and I was given permission to to keep some of those TGMD scores. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and then my first academic appointment was at Louisiana Tech University. And so upon arrival, immediately I started collecting TGMD, TGMD2 scores on the kids there. And then I have a nice, wonderful collaboration with uh, Auburn University and Troy University. And uh, those faculty, uh, Candy Howard, Mary Rudisill, Daniel Wadsworth, those folks, uh, we all got together and, and, and said, hey, let's get some TGMD data and see, let's put them together and see how it works. And then 
we uh, followed suit as well here upon arrival at uh, University of South Carolina. And we have been testing children every year, both in Head Start, um, other types of early childhood centers, such as rural ones, public ones that aren't necessarily Head Start, higher SES type centers, things like that. And so as, as we're looking at all these data, we're like, where are the high performers? You know, folks are always asking me, what does developmental delay look like? And I can show you that, no problem. But what do the skilled kids look like? And well, I know what they're supposed to look like and I just wasn't seeing it. And so it was hitting me really just profoundly. Man, these, bias and, these biases and beliefs that we had, they're not holding. Right, the only one that did hold a little bit, and it was pretty consistent throughout all the, the sites and were that the girls did perform significantly lower than the boys with object control or ball skills. Mm. And it's not because of uh, anthropometrics or physiological reasons, because there are really no differences between boys and girls at an early age. They, they don't tend to show physiological or anthropometric differences until puberty. And so that's obviously something environmental that's driving those, those differences. So that's about the only characteristic that we saw across all the samples was, it, was the, the significant difference in object control or ball skills for boys versus girls. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, really that's not much as far as all the demographic data that you were looking at. I mean, it's almost like Sometimes if you throw enough demographic data, you're going to find something significant, right? Absolutely. So that's, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's, it, it's very interesting just to see that, that, that um, delay kind of um, across the board. Was there any areas uh, in particular, was any pieces in the locomotor or ball control skills um, that you found to be profoundly delayed? Dribbling. None of the kids could dribble. And probably because it's one of the more challenging skills, right? It's, it's propulsion reception that's, you know, towards your feet. So, you know, anything further away from your head's harder for a younger child to control, but it was profound. Yeah, pretty much none of the kids could dribble. The locomotors were not as profoundly delayed as the object control skills, and they were still delayed. It's just the object control skills were more towards the lower end mm -hmm. than the range. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. And uh, yeah, but for sure, dribbling really stuck out. And then for girls, it was throwing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And that, and that stuff, obviously, that hopefully can also inform a teacher as well to say, hey, we need to maybe put even more. I mean, obviously, it sounds like we need to put effort across the board on this stuff. Um, but even, you know, areas maybe we need to focus on a little bit more um, with that early childhood area. Well, let's transition kind of, I want to ask you now kind of like, what, what are your plans as well as what do you hope the field, what, what needs to happen now in the future as far as research and advocacy? Well, from an advocacy perspective, as I said before, I, I really would love to see somebody explore the extent to which early childhood centers are meeting the active start guidelines for physical activity. Right, so they're out there. They were published published by then NASPE, now SHAPE, looking at children uh, from birth through age five. And, and the guidelines are, are pretty spot on. It's, it's things like structured and unstructured physical activity, a focus on fundamental motor skills, 
uh, having an outdoor environment that supports quality movement and things like that. And we actually did do a study a few years ago, it was a small survey just seeing the extent to which these early childhood centers uh, met the guidelines and, and very few of them did. And actually less than 1% of them employed somebody with any sort of content knowledge in motor development whatsoever. And that to me just completely blew my mind. But it did used to be that all early childhood teachers had to have some sort of coursework in motor development. Yeah. And now they no longer have to. Uh, well, in our state or in, at our school, I know that we teach one class to the early childhood, uh, yeah. a movement education class. But yeah. I've talked about repeatedly in this, this, uh, on this podcast, one class in adaptive physical education is probably not sufficient to be, you know, teach kids with disabilities in PE. So my guess is one class in movement education is not sufficient to oh. quality, uh, you know, teach physical education or physical uh, motor skills uh, competently at a, at a preschool level either. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and so not only would I like to see a policy shift there in some regard, but uh, I'd also like to see a shift away from the notion that recess alone is enough to promote, you know, high quality motor development. So every child in this study had daily recess and most of them had it twice a day. Yes, I remember seeing that. So it was kind of one of your big things was, was free play is not the same as a purposeful kind of play, physical education. Um, although I think you, yeah, there was a few things in there about a lack of uh, play as well, but right. that um, this, this recess is not, does not uh, replace physical education. It's an important point. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. And even more so for children with disabilities, right? So if, if you're on the playground, it's an autonomous setting. I can choose to do whatever I want. I could sit on the ground and play in the sandbox. I can sit in the corner and, and, and look at a, at a picture book, which is fine. Uh, you know, recess has its own benefits and I'm not disputing that because often when I say this about recess, I get some flack, right? But recess is very good for social emotional development for most. But what really supports that good social emotional development on the playground are the motor skills because the motor skills give you the tools to ambulate around giving you social capital. Right? And so if you're a child with a disability or if you're a child who's more prone to maybe be introverted or would prefer non-active time on the playground, such as the sandbox or the picture book, you're, you're not going to demonstrate your, your motor abilities. You're not going to interact with peers. And so even though recess is important for exploration and social emotional development, if delivered properly, you need the structured time to, to learn motor skills. They don't occur naturally. They have to be taught. And even more so for children with disabilities. What about um, your future research endeavors in, in this area? That's, that's a good question. So I do quite a lot of intervention work. And so right now, we, we actually embarked on a, on a new project, um, a project that was funded through the Duke Endowment. And I'm very uh, grateful to them for giving me a three-year award for this. But there are really three agents in a young child's life that drives choices for them. 
and, and one, of course, are their teachers. One could be a peer or a sibling, and the other are their parents. And so in the past, we've, we've done some intervention where we deliver SKIP, we the experts, but as you pointed out, that's not very feasible nationwide. I've worked with teachers to deliver SKIP, which has been helpful, but you know, they've got a lot on their plate. So this current research project, which we've never done, takes a look at the benefits of, of parental instruction on you know, motor skills and physical activity behaviors and social emotional development. And so we're, that's going on right now, it just started. That's and really it, exciting. I, yeah. I mean, that's something I, sometimes when we fight for quality physical education, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm always rah-rah right behind that. But all at the same time, I also, I think there are, is a responsibility that needs to be put on the families and, and households because the reality is, is that there are huge components of that child's life. Um, and we need to be giving them the resources, the tools, and also emphasize that as an area that, that also needs to have physical activity um, within there too. So that's great that you're doing um, kind of that whole, that real holistic. Um, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And, and there's been some, some findings that have already come out that, that completely shocked me. Really? Would you like to share any of them? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> parents think their children are being physically active, right? So they, they've given me estimates as high as 12, 14 hours a day, <laughs> which we know, you know, it's not realistic. And, and, but really we know that only 20% of preschool age children meet physical activity guidelines. So if you think your child's being active and we, we are also working on their perceptions of their children's motor development. And I don't have those findings yet, but I have an idea of what they're going to be. Um, I think they think they're moving really well, but uh, it'll be interesting to see when I show them their actual performance scores, how that internalizes. But so if parents are thinking their children are actually moving a great deal and they think they're moving well, then they're not going to worry about it, right? So I kind of want to shift thinking to better uh, understanding of what their children are actually doing and what that looks like. And then also sort of shift their minds around valuing physical activity, mm. right? Because oftentimes, and, you know, teachers can be guilty of this, parents can be guilty of this. You know, we, we sometimes want the children just to sit still, to pay attention, right? Which of course, you know, there's times for that. But I wanna shift their minds to expecting their children to be active and valuing them for doing it. And I think if we can do that, which is sort of the focus of this project, if I can shift expectations and valuations, then known barriers, physical activity will go away, right? Because if you value something enough, then the barriers won't get in your way. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm seeing some of that kind of emerging in the first month and a half we've been going with this project. And That's the other thing that is shocking, the parents of children with disabilities, so of course, given it's my program, um, it's universally designed and we fully uh, invited, so we actually sought them out, sought the parents out of the kids with disabilities and tried to get them involved. And, and they were incredibly, surprised that the program was for them too you know and that that was really shocking to me you know almost the jaw drop when i would say to them this is who i am and my expertise is in early childhood adapted physical education and activity 
and and you know this program is for you too i want you all here and then the jazz will hit the ground so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens right if Absolutely. they can make a um and uh and in very uh, short future, I'm going to have Luis uh, Comana on here as well, and uh, we're going to talk about his fit family. So it'll be interesting to kind of hear some of his perspectives and, and findings as well, you know, because he focuses a lot on the family as well. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit about your online graduate program? We're, we're excited that we have just begun our first cohort in our brand new 100% online and asynchronous master's program in adapted physical education. And uh, to my knowledge, it's the only one like it in the world and in the United States. And uh, so far it's going really well. Um, our students really enjoy the flexibility afforded them by the asynchronous format. So they can log in and complete assignments when it fits into their schedule rather than being forced to meet at a predetermined time. And we. We are finding this to be really valuable because most of our students are teachers, they're coaches, they have families, and it's hard to find a time that works for everyone. So, so far, so good. Uh, we're actually accepting applications now for the summer and or the fall semesters that are upcoming. Uh, this master's could be completed in as fast as one year or as long as on your time. And we also offer in-state tuition for all applicants, regardless of where they reside. That's a that's a real nice benefit. Yeah, sounds like a wonderful program. I'm excited to see uh, how it continues after you know this exciting first year. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Brian. As I've been talking to you, I just feel like man, um, you're not you're on my 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 smallish podcast, and I feel like listening to you and listening to this research and reading research. I mean, this is something that needs to get picked up by NPR or CNN and um like really 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 uh pushed out there um i really think this is really profound your findings are significant i mean you have a huge group of kids and across the nation um this is something that seems you know i'm happy you're on the show but i feel like we need to get to a little <laughs> higher higher platform yeah uh, yeah i think this is really great so i hope i hope everyone listening really takes a lot out of this this is information to advocate for their early childhood pe uh, programs um and motor competence and all the different things that we've talked about so uh thank you very much for being on the show and sharing a little bit about your research yeah thanks scott this is really fun and i really appreciate uh you having me here absolutely thank you